Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, um, it's Leszek Jaszczewski here. Welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. Um, my guest today is Eli Gateva, who is a departmental lecturer in European Union politics at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. A specialist in EU politics, East and South East Europe, EU enlargement and conditionality. Welcome to podcast, Ali. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Um, thank you for having me, Leszek. And um, I'm especially happy that we are going to discuss your work in progress, your unpublished yet paper. Very interesting. Um, I, I had a chance to, to read it. Democracy promotion and safeguarding after accession. Does the EU matter? And this is, um, so yeah, this is a question I think we can all be asking ourselves. And maybe let's start with very basic concepts. So what is a democratic backsliding and why does it matter for the EU? I mean, you would be surprised that there is no agreement in the literature as to how we should define democratic backsliding. Um, however, there is a broader agreement that unlike previous cases of democratic decline, a democratic backsliding more recently um, involves essentially leaders who have been democratically electing, concentrating um, more and more power by weakening a number of different democratic institutions and in essence removing checks and balances on power, on their power. And what tools does you have to address this issue uh, among its members? I mean, initially there weren't that many tools that the EU had to look into this matter. Um, so essentially there was Article 7, which is also known as the nuclear option, which provided the possibility um, of excluding a, a member from having a vote in the council. Um, however, because it requires unanimity, um, it recently has transpired that this option is not particularly a viable um, instrument or tool for the EU to reverse democratic backsliding. Um, and over the last um, five or six years, we have seen the development of a number of different instruments, including the introduction of the rule of law reports, which provides a monitoring instrument that is applied to all EU member states. And there is also what is um, also referred to as the rule of law conditionality. So a link has been established between disbursing EU funding um, and ensuring that member states comply with rule of law and democracy. Um, and there has been, of course, the exception of Bulgaria and Romania, where the European Commission has been monitoring developments um, in the area of justice reform and fight against corruption since their accession in 2007. Um, there have also been other frameworks, including the rule of law framework. So essentially over the last, um, I would say now even almost a decade, uh, we have seen mushrooming, if you'd like, of different initiatives and instruments at European level. So most of our listeners will know already, well, we discussed in this podcast, the problems of democracy, rule of law in Hungary and Poland. But what is the issue with Bulgaria and Romania on which you are focusing this paper? I mean, Bulgaria and Romania are very um, interesting cases. Um, and somehow the literature has 
neglected them when we look at the broader debates about democratic backsliding. Um, and I think that developments in Bulgaria and Romania have been uh, broadly defined with regard to unfinished business. So when Bulgaria and Romania became member states of the European Union, um, there was an understanding that more work needs to be done in particular areas uh, regarding the independence and effectiveness of the judiciary, a fight against corruption, um, and in the case of Bulgaria as well, fight against organized crime. So that's why um, what used to be pre-accession monitoring was extended and applied for the very first time to existing EU member states de facto creating a second-class membership. Um, so both Bulgaria and Romania continued to be um, very rigorously scrutinized even after accession with the aim to achieve the same standards um, as other EU member states. Um, can we say that those, the special treatment, did it actually work? Did it like, EU achieve its goals? Well, that is... Uh, a great question, um, and I think it's a question of, uh, well, benchmarks, essentially. So the question is, what would you like to have achieved with this instrument? Um, so in this case, the Commission declared it 2019 in the case of Bulgaria and in November 2022 in the case of Romania, that both countries satisfactorily meet the benchmarks that were set at their accession. So they can now lift this special mechanism which has been put for Bulgaria and Romania. The question is how ambitious you are in terms of interpreting what the benchmarks were set to achieve. Um, so do we have an efficient, effective and independent judiciary in both cases? Has the fight against corruption been successful? Um, I mean, I would argue that both cases have still more work to do. But this is not an exclusive matter only for Bulgaria and Romania. We have seen with the publication of the rule of law reports that there are issues in all EU member states. I'm curious, how do you see that those problems with the new member states, how they affected the perception of the enlargement process as such and, uh, and influenced enlargement policy in general? It seems to be a quite a big challenge for future enlargement. I mean, this has been a common theme, I think, for for a number um, of years now. Um, and I would like to say that um, I still find it surprising that uh, next year it will be 20 years since um, the 10 countries joined the European Union and we still talk about them as new member states of the European Union. Um, so Eastern European states... Um, their contribution to European integration has recently been challenged. But, I mean, it, this was exactly the case in 2007 when Bulgaria and Romania joined. And there was this argument that they will give a bad name to EU enlargement policy, and this is going to have a crucial um, impact on the prospects of further enlargement with the Western Balkans. Uh, and now we have similar arguments about the impact of Hungary and Poland or issues with the rule of law in Hungary and Poland on further enlargement of the European Union. And I think that this is an easy argument to be made, um, and I will argue against it precisely because there is now quite a lot of conclusive evidence and examples that it's not just a question about how consolidated your democracy is. So old and new democracies can backslide. The question is how the EU can deal with these challenges and issues 
um, after accession, I think that this is much more important rather than raising issues of concern how successful they were before accession. I mean, again, if you remember, Hungary was the front runner of the Eastern enlargement and was declared a success story. Um, and since then, unfortunately, developments have been reversed. So I think, and I will argue very strongly about it, uh, becoming a member state does not signify a point of no return when it comes to democratic consolidation. Um, and I think it's important that um, all EU member states um, or that the EU has a mechanism to monitor developments in all EU member states and pay attention to the new challenges to democracy as well. Until recently, it seemed that there was a broad agreement that at least in terms of the candidate countries, EU is very effective in, well, enforcing, let's say, the, you know, the changes um, in terms of uh, legislation, in terms of like value abiding. Um, but we don't see it materializing, at least it seems we don't see it uh, in the case of Western Balkans. Is it just a question they don't have a clear perspective of joining or Maybe it was something about those countries which joined in 2000, um, well, uh, in, in this like big wave of um, of mid-2000s that is different from these new candidate countries. How do, you, how do you see it in retrospective? I mean, I think it's important to, um, again, reflect on how countries were measured um, and evaluated back in 2004, 2007. Uh, versus the current approach that the Commission has adopted towards the Western Balkans. Um, so very much the case with the 2004 enlargement, the focus was on adoption of legislation and obviously the establishment of different institutions. Um, currently, the position of the EU has changed and they require not only the uh, adoption of specific legislation, the establishment of institution, implementation but also they are asking for a track record of implementation and an insistence on irreversible reforms so i mean again um the the demands that we have and the way to evaluate them are much more challenging so this is perhaps one um, important aspect when we compare the 2004 um, enlargement and the 2007 enlargement with the ongoing enlargement round and um, so we need to be mindful not to compare pears um, and apples, uh, but also clearly the scale and the scope of challenges is uh, as well very, very different. Not only has the EU become more demanding and more rigorous in its approach, uh, but clearly the countries in the Western Balkans are experiencing um, and facing a set of unique and difficult challenges. This doesn't mean that the EU is not going to have an impact in the longer term, uh, but unfortunately, over the last decade, very little um, has improved. And many have argued that the fact that the EU has been ambivalent about the perspectives of the Western Balkans um, has not helped the situation very much. You mentioned before that this division between new and old member states, it's, well, it's almost funny after so many years. I'm not sure if Greece was called uh, you know, new member states when was the, this big wave of enlargement in 2004. Uh, I don't think so, at least. I don't remember this. Um, and, uh, and even Sweden and, Austria and, and Finland. Um, do we see that there are challenges to the EU normative order also among the so-called old member states? Why we don't see the discussion about, is it like because there is no problem or is simply like different kind of treatment for the old and new member states? 
This is an excellent question. Um, I think that there are different challenges that countries uh, facing and experiencing at different points of time. Um, and in some cases, um, not enough attention has been paid. Again, if we talk about um, a fight against corruption and the impact that is having on EU budget and the functioning of the European Union, um, when the European Union published its first and only EU-wide anti-corruption report, um, there was an acknowledgement that all member states are having um, issues when it comes to fighting uh, corruption and this of course is having an impact on, on taxpayers contribution to the European budget um, so I don't think that this is an exclusively Eastern European problem because there have been concerns about developments in Malta Italy is one of the founding members of the European Union and there have been a number of different issues uh, Greece now is attracting quite a lot of attention uh, for a number of different challenges um, and I don't think it is fair to only look um, at developments um, in Central and Eastern Europe. Yes, I think that's that's very important. We don't try to uh, point to these countries and to say that problems of nationalism, populism, corruption are um, well restricted to new member states. It's, I think it's, it does uh, more harm than good. Uh, and if you want to look at the values uh, it would be good to look them across uh, across the whole year uh, and i hope this conversation will also help people realize that um, it's not just about bulgaria romania or poland and hungary mm. do you think um doing a lot of research and you also recorded i think 30 conversations with uh mm, with leaders with experts within the eu um about this issue do you do you think that EU needs needs more tools, new tools for approaching this problem, or is it a question of actually using the existing tools? And yeah, so maybe I'll stop here, and then it will be the last question. Uh, how, how do you see this? Is it like are we using these tools effectively, or should be some other mechanism um, employed for for challenging the democratic backsliding? I mean, I think that now there is a broad agreement that um, EU's toolbox is complete. Now the question is how effective, uh, coherent and consistent the European Union is in terms of implementing and using the tools that it has. Um, and I mean, again, here we also need to be aware that in some cases, um, in many of the cases, this requires uh, political backing from national leaders. Um, and this has been um, a constant um, issue particularly in developments regarding uh, Hungary and Poland, how willing national leaders, heads of state and government are uh, to, to sanction in some cases and to use um, the full range of EU tools and instruments. And the very last question, which I wanted to, to separate from the previous one, to what extent can we see the intervention of the EU uh, as a possibly being uh, adversarial, having adversarial effect. From the perspective of the membership countries, it can be perceived as foreign intervention, especially nationalist government can use it as Viktor Orban, law and justice to, in Poland for their advantage. Do you see that actually EU would be effective uh, and should be that concerned with those issues? I mean, EU has to, I mean, it's in the treaties, but do we see this from political perspective? 
as as effective or is it possible that sometimes actually you might uh, achieve some counter effects some unknown uh, effects that it doesn't want to to achieve how, how do you see this I mean it's possible yeah um, I agree with you it, it it's possible that um, some of um, EU's interventions might have unintended consequences uh, but then, I mean, again, essentially the question is about what is it at stake and what is it that the European Union is trying to protect? Is it just about the quality of democracy in specific EU member state? Or are we talking about the functioning of European integration and the future of the European project? Um, and I think that these are important questions that have now more recently been asked um, given the fact that some countries have used their veto power to block crucial decisions regarding um, EU foreign policy uh, and um, as well the allocation of the European budget. Uh, so the issues are very closely interlinked and it's very difficult to focus on one specific aspect in terms of justifying the course of action. But what I also would like to stress is that um, based on my conversations with um, different um, EU and national officials, most of them see this as an instrument of providing opportunities for support uh, rather than sanctioning on punishing someone. Because essentially, um, when you have a member state all national officials work together on a regular basis, so you don't want to alienate or um, make it more difficult to reach a common agreement and common solutions. So that's why it's important that it's a way to work together rather than antagonize each other. So coming back to your initial question, does the EU matter? How would we say? Um, I would it say does. that the EU, it does, it does matter in many different ways. And this is the important thing that I would also like to, to stress and highlight. And I think it's important not to think of um, the European Union just as a toolbox of different options, uh, but essentially highlight the significance and importance that EU membership has in terms of empowering different domestic actors. Because uh, ultimately, when we look at developments, um, in terms of democratic reforms, there is very little that the European Union can do or external actors and external interventions are particularly um, limited. It is um, ultimately domestic leaders who can drive and deliver reforms in their respective member states. So the extent to which EU can empower or constrain various domestic actors matters for success of democratic reforms. Aligateva, thank you so much for this insightful and nuanced point of view on the safeguarding and promotion of democracy. Very important subject. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Leszek. Thank you for inviting me. This is all for today. Please tune in for Ricardo next week. Until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.